listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. In Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28, the Apostle Paul is giving his final words to the Ephesian elders. He had been there for a number of years teaching and preaching and doing what a church planter does, what a leader in the church does, what an apostle does, planting churches and discipling and teaching them how to follow Jesus Christ. Well, at the end of his time, he's giving them some parting words that were not only applicable for the Ephesian elders, but they're also applicable for us today here in the 21st century. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's what an elder of a church is, an overseer. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears." And here we have a clear directive from Scripture, a clear directive from the Word of God that the purpose of an overseer is to take care of the flock, to protect the flock, to make sure that God is glorified, that the mission of the church is fulfilled, and that nothing becomes diluted or polluted. Uh, The problem that we have in the church is how to balance what God has given us. He's given us the command to not compromise on his sinless, holy nature. There's this issue of justice. And then there's also this issue of the grace and the mercy of God. And oftentimes those two seem to be at odds. Because the question is, what kind of a church are we going to be? What kind of a church, if you're listening by podcast or by radio, what kind of a church are you? What kind of a church are you going to be when somebody among you, when somebody among us sins seriously and affects other people? Now, all sin is damaging and affects at least one person, certainly, first and foremost, God himself. All sin impacts God. All sin impacts at least the individual who committed that sin, and in some instances, that sin has a wider spread, the net is cast in a larger circle, and it affects other people. And so the question is, what do we do with a sinning saint? What do we do with somebody who has sinned against God and sinned against other people and their sin has permeated and affected other people? Because we have to really balance this issue, biblically speaking, we have to balance the justice of God, the uncompromising nature of God, with the grace and the mercy of God. So over here, we have people who are justice people, people who are into justice and righteousness and the holiness of God, people maybe with a prophetic gifting. I'm not talking about prophetic in terms of foretelling the future. I'm talking about somebody who's a teacher and a preacher of God's word. Sometimes you're bent, you're wired toward justice and you wanna see everybody in jail. 
it's just obvious. Everything's black and white. Well, if you're not this, you're that. And you're either hot or you're cold. And there's no in between. And justice people want people who sin to be dealt with harshly and severely. And it's important for us to understand, well, how do we handle that? How do we balance that biblically with the people over here who are the mercy people? The mercy people want everybody to get out of jail. And if we listen to the mercy people, nobody would be in jail. Nobody would be convicted of anything. Everybody would be out on the streets and we'd have chaos. We'd have insanity all over the place. And so we've got to biblically balance, biblically weigh justice and grace and mercy. How do these all come together? And with that, we're reminded we must remember that at the cross, justice and mercy kissed Justice and mercy kissed at the cross. There on the cross, God Almighty made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to become sin so that you could become, so that I could become, get this, the righteousness of God. Where God did not change his standard, which was and is sinless perfection. He didn't change that. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So God didn't change that standard. God simply made provision for that standard by giving his one and only uniquely brought forth son to shed his blood so that God's standard of perfection and sinlessness could be met without compromise. God didn't look away from your sin. God looked directly at your sin, at my sin, as it was placed on Jesus Christ. And the miracle is that somehow, God now looks at you and me and sees us as the righteousness of his son, even though we were guilty and we deserved to go into an eternity separate from him. God did not change his standard. God simply provided so that his standard would not be compromised. And what God did for you and me is he extended to you and to me undeserved favor, that's grace, the blessing of God, and he withheld the judgment that we deserve because of our sin because he placed all of that judgment on Jesus on the cross. And so we don't compromise the justice of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, nor do we belittle the grace and the mercy of God. We remember that on the cross, on the body of Jesus Christ, justice and mercy kissed. And we have the most perfect demonstration of God in a beautiful, unforgettable way, but oh, how we forget it that God simultaneously dealt with meeting his standard while extending goodness and kindness and mercy and grace to you and me who did not deserve it. And so we have a challenge before us, as every church will have a challenge before it, to make a decision. How do you handle somebody when they sin. How do you handle a sinning saint? Well, really, there are one of two paths that a church can go down, that church leaders can go down, and that you can go down, that I can go down. There are really only two choices. There's not a third choice or a fourth choice. You either go down the road of discipline or you go down the road of restoration. It's either discipline or restoration. The one road of discipline, we could understand this way. 
When somebody is unrepentant, when somebody is not broken, when somebody is not demonstrated a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, which is what 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about very clearly, a godly sorrow leads to a change in behavior. That's what repentance is. Somebody can cry crocodile tears all they want, but the real proof of whether or not they have a godly sorrow is demonstrated in, it's found in whether or not their lifestyle is changing. And so if somebody is caught in sin or somebody sins and reveals their sin voluntarily, it really doesn't matter, as we're going to see from the Word of God, whether somebody's caught or whether they voluntarily confess it before the Lord, the truth of the matter is whether or not they go down a path of discipline or a path of restoration comes down to their response to the sin. If somebody is resistant to God... If somebody continues in arrogance, in pride, and rebellion, and division, divisiveness, they give God no other option than to go down that path of discipline. You might have heard that phrase used in a church before, church discipline. When somebody resists God, or I say this with fear and trepidation, resists the leadership of the church. I mean, this is a very serious thing. I don't say that happily. What's serious is that God works through human beings. I don't understand that as much as I have to accept it. God works through mere mortals to help other mere mortals follow God. Now, if there were a way for me to preach and teach the Bible with a bag over my head without that being more of a distraction, I would do it. Some of you wish that I would start doing it anyway for other reasons, right? But God uses mere mortals to teach and instruct other mere mortals about the one who is immortal, the living and true God. And so with that, in the course of a church, God puts pastors and elders, deacons, depending on a church structure, you know, there are different names used in different churches, but the idea is that God puts mortals in the position of fear and trepidation to lead a church, to shepherd a church, to oversee a church, to not compromise on the sinless standard of God and to administer the grace and the mercy of that same God. And when somebody sins, when a saint sins and it impacts others in the church, a individual or individuals who have sinned have a choice of whether or not they're going to go down the path of restoration and reconciliation or church discipline. Remember, church discipline is reserved when there's no repentance, when there's no remorse, when there's no grief, when there's no submission to God and submission to the leadership. You leave God and you leave the leaders of the church with no other option because of the resistance to God, because of the arrogance, but to go down a road of church discipline. Now, the other option is restoration. We're going to see that in our time together. The other option is to respond in humility and brokenness with a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And then there can be forgiveness, there can be healing, there can be restoration. It becomes a beautiful opportunity for the church to be the Holy Spirit hospital that the church is supposed to be. Let's talk about this very candidly for a moment. Can we do that for just a moment? Imagine me being candid and honest for a change, right? I'm being sarcastic when I say that. If we cannot be honest and transparent in the body of Christ, in the church, then where can we really be honest and transparent? 
If people can't be honest to God and honest with other believers in the body of Christ to experience forgiveness and healing and restoration and reconciliation, we leave them no place else to go and we actually end up, instead of having a group of living sacrifices, a family of living sacrifices, we end up having a group of walking contradictions. We end up being a bunch of hypocrites because the truth of the matter is that there is no good news without the good news of restoration and reconciliation. There is no gospel without the gospel. And what is the gospel? That God, through Christ, through simple faith in Christ, will forgive all of your sins, every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. If all you do is simply accept what he's done through his son, What's easy for you was priceless and costly for Jesus Christ. There is no good news without the good news. There is no gospel without reconciliation. There is no gospel without forgiveness. And if we in the church are not forgiving to somebody who is genuinely repentant, genuinely humble, genuinely broken, genuinely in need of forgiveness and restoration, we leave that person with no other opportunity to go anywhere else because they're not going to receive what can only be received supernaturally, miraculously, as a matter of being counterintuitive in the body of Christ. We are supposed to manifest and demonstrate the glory and the goodness of God. And one of the primary ways of God manifesting his glory and his goodness is through grace and mercy experienced in the body of Christ where people can be forgiven of anything and everything. There is no sin that is bigger than the cross of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that will keep you or me from an abiding, growing, deepening, intimate, walking relationship with Jesus Christ unless we are prideful and arrogant and resistant to the glory of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Look with me, for example, at 3 John. In 3 John, the epistle of 3 John, easy to find. You go to 1 and 2 John, keep going. It's right there. It's just one chapter long. Third John helps us understand how leaders in a church and how the church itself is supposed to respond to a sinner who sins within the body and does not repent and opens themselves up to church discipline. Third John, beginning in verse 9, we're going to look at verse 9 and verse 10, says this, I've written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. With fear and trepidation, a lead pastor, other pastors of a church, elders in the church, oversee that church because here Paul is helping us understand that God does demonstrate his authority through the mortals of the church who are given the responsibility of leading the church. And the scriptures make it very clear, not many of you should be teachers, James chapter 3, because teachers will be judged more severely. But it's the truth. God puts mere mortals in a position to be able to glorify the immortal, the living, and the true God. 
So here there's an issue, there's an instance with this man named Diotrephes. I've written something to the church by Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. And so here we have John... The Apostle John calling out somebody by name, something that we don't do today in today's world because everybody's afraid of being sued. We're more afraid of a lawsuit than we are in reverence to the living and true God and his holiness and his reputation and his name. The reason we have liability insurance is in case somebody wants to sue for us doing the right thing, that's between you and the insurance company. We're going to preach and teach the full counsel of God and not back away from what God teaches. And the Bible talks very clearly about lawsuits among believers and the carnality, the fleshliness, the worldliness, the sinfulness of somebody who wants to sue another follower of Jesus Christ, let alone the church. It should be obvious when somebody says, I'm going to sue another Christian, I'm going to sue the church. It should be obvious you're not acting like a Christian, and maybe you're not, because you're taking matters into your own hands instead of letting God have them in his but here you have John calling out another individual, Diotrephes, by name and warning the church about his divisive, arrogant behavior. And it's not the only time it happens. If we look, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see now the Apostle Paul doing something similar. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, he names the individual specifically. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Look at the Apostle Paul leaving the judgment of God, the discipline of God, into the hands of God. The Lord will repay him for his deeds. But Paul does not shrink away from calling him on the carpet. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. These are two examples in 3 John and 2 Timothy. These are two examples of an apostle calling out an individual who has defied God, who's demonstrated arrogance and rebellion, lack of humility, lack of brokenness, lack of repentance, and the church needs to be warned the individual needs to be warned because what is at stake is the glory of God, the reputation of the local church, and the effectiveness of the local church, and whether or not the church will succeed in her mission. We see something similar in the book of Titus. If we look at Titus in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, look with me. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, remind them, here's Paul who had an understudy named Titus, and he's helping him be consistent so that the same things are taught church to church, whether Paul's talking to Titus or whether he's talking to Timothy or whether he's talking to others. We see Paul say a lot of the same things in different letters. And one of the things that Paul is teaching to Titus is something that's relevant, pertinent for us today in the 21st century, even as this was written in the first century, do not compromise on God's standard when it comes to an arrogant individual, a divisive individual, individual, somebody who actually is jeopardizing the glory of God and the effectiveness of the church. Titus chapter 1 verse 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, 
to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his undeserved favor, that's what grace is, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Pretty strong language. No room for compromise here whatsoever. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. And then he says this in verses 10 and 11, pay attention. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. That's powerful terminology here. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. There are absolutely times when you need to call somebody on the carpet and say you're being divisive, you're being arrogant, you're saying maybe you're a Christ follower, but Jesus was humble and you're not demonstrating humility at all. You're not submitting to the leadership of the church, and I say that with fear and trepidation, but it's true. It's in the Bible. And I could go astray. Any lead pastor could go astray. And let me tell you, it's not just the lead pastors who could go astray. For every lead pastor you hear that goes astray, there are other church leaders who are not in the spotlight who have been astray for a long time. You just never hear about them. Any one of us could go astray at any moment and be self-deceived, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to Almighty God, divisive. And so what's presented here in the scriptures is something that you need to understand and I need to understand. We need to understand it in the body of Christ, not just here, but in every church. There are absolutely times where somebody by name needs to be called out because they're not walking in humility. They're creating division. They're being divisive. They're being arrogant. They're not walking in humility. And they are threatening the reputation of God through his local church. And the leaders in the church have to take that with utmost seriousness. It's not a small thing, it's a huge thing. And if the leaders who have been given that challenge, that responsibility by Almighty God, do not step in and protect the flock and preserve the integrity of the name and reputation of God, then who's going to do that? Remember, the enemy is always willing, ready, and able to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says that in John chapter 10, the thief, the enemy, the devil, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life and give it to the full. 
Whenever God is moving in a church, you better believe that the devil is moving there as well, looking for an opportunity to exalt sin, looking for an opportunity to exalt Satan himself, and looking for an opportunity to squelch the reputation of the glory, the goodness of the Savior. And how we handle individuals based on how they are handling what God is saying to them, whether it's through humility or whether it's through arrogance, makes all the difference in the world as to the glory of God, the reputation of the church, and the success of the church herself. Do not compromise. Do not compromise on what God insists upon when God says in his word, warn a divisive person once. Warn the divisive person a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. We've had to warn people here at the church. We warn them once, we warn them twice. You know, when you start having to warn somebody a third time and a fourth time, you have to start asking, am I starting to disobey the commandment of the scriptures? That can be an exercise in futility. It always is when you disobey what the scriptures lay out. There are some gray areas in scripture, but there are also some black and white areas of scripture. We've had to come alongside of people who like to, did you hear this? Did you hear the latest? They like to gossip. And we've had to tell them, step away from ministry. We've had to tell people to step away because they like to slander. Slander is not just what gossip is, it's gossip on steroids. Gossip is talking to somebody else about something they really have no business hearing. That's gossip. Slander is saying untrue things or damaging things about somebody or other people, or perhaps even telling half-truths. You know, you can tell a half-truth and it can be a whole lie. And so we've had to. Some of you have been approached by people. Listen, I know that I look stupid, but I'm not as stupid as I look. I've heard some of the stories that are out there circulating and percolating. I know some of the people who are out there, and you do too, because they've come to you and they've talked to you about things that they really shouldn't have talked about, and some of us have listened to things we shouldn't have listened to because they're half-truths. And people blaspheme God by doing that, They dishonor the Lord, they elevate sin, they elevate Satan when they should be talking about the Savior. And we've had to tell people you need to step away from ministry and sometimes those people are broken, they are repentant, they're contrite and they return to the Lord and they say, I have sinned and they go down the path of restoration. Beautiful, God-honoring, biblical thing. But at other times, they leave the church and they continue to talk, and they continue to spread rumor and innuendo, and they talk about sin, and they elevate Satan instead of spending their time talking about the Savior. Oh, how the same vessel that can be used for the glory of God to build up the church and spread the aroma of Jesus Christ can also be used to the Savior's detriment, to talk about sin, to elevate Satan when the only one who we should be talking about is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so you better believe it. And hopefully you are thankful to Almighty God that when we see divisiveness, when we see gossip, when we hear about it, when we hear about slander, when we hear about somebody talking about somebody else behind their back, we absolutely sit down with that person. We absolutely want to have a discussion with them. And if anybody tells you the pastors won't talk to me, that is a lie. Now they're not only gossiping and slandering, but they're also lying. Our door is always open, myself and the elders, for reconciliation. But when somebody is divisive and they've been warned multiple times and they're not demonstrating repentance, there have been times when we've had to tell them, you know what, we don't do things that way in our living room. We want you to take off your shoes. We don't conduct ourselves that way in this church, and we don't tolerate conduct that would bring dishonor to Jesus in this church. You want to be humble, you want to repent, reconciliation is the wide door that's open to you. But if you don't want to, we're not going to spend our time spinning our wheels and trying to get you to sit down and talk about something that really is fundamental and basic. You're arrogant, you're gossiping, you're slandering, you're spreading rumors, and you are defaming the name and the reputation of Jesus Christ. You are hindering the mission of the church, which is to lead people to the feet of Jesus, lead them to salvation and disciple them. And I don't know about you, there's no other mission in the church. If you hinder that mission, if you hinder the glory of God, I don't know what to do with you. Our leaders don't know what to do with you. And you should not apologize for that if you're a pastor or if you're an elder, if you're a leader in the church. You do not compromise on what God says we should not compromise. But when somebody demonstrates humility and brokenness and a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, our arms are wide open to them. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a heinous sin that takes place here. This is where Paul is referencing Deuteronomy chapter 27. Verse 20, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 30, and Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, your favorite book of the Bible, right? Leviticus. Now, what's interesting about this is that here Paul is writing to the Corinthians who are non-Jews. They're not Jews. And Paul is referencing a commandment, part of the law that was given to the Jewish people. You can't get more Jewish than Leviticus. And in Leviticus, it's clearly laid out, Leviticus 18, 8, that a man should not have his father's wife. If the father remarries, you're not to be sexually involved in any remote way with the father's wife. Clearly spelled out in those passages of the scripture. Now, what's interesting here is that we have Paul referencing that, talking about that same principle because a man did that here in the Corinthian church and Paul saying, you're not supposed to do that. Now, what should be interesting is that Leviticus chapter 18 has a whole list of sexual prohibitions, sexual activity that we should not engage in, one of which is homosexual activity. Now, there are people today who say, well, this prohibition against homosexuality, that's Old Testament. Well, not really. There are certain aspects of the Old Testament moral code, the moral law, that are timeless, and it's proven by the fact that here is Paul speaking to a group of non-Jews and upholding the moral aspect of the law for people everywhere. 
So we got to be careful that we don't start cherry picking scriptures and making excuses when the moral conduct that's provided in the Old Testament still continues. All right? So we have Paul who understood the Old Testament teaching to a group of non-Jewish people a moral principle in the scripture about sexual morality. Does that make sense? Have I lost anybody? And so when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. There it is, Leviticus 18.8. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Well, wait a second, wait a second. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, don't judge or you'll be judged. Well, please don't put words in Jesus' mouth. Please don't take the teachings of Jesus out of context because we have to preach and teach and abide by the full counsel of what the Bible teaches. And if Jesus was teaching that we should never, ever judge, then Paul is being erroneous and out of his mind to be judging people within the church. But we'll get to that in just a second. When Jesus was teaching and preaching about do not judge, he was giving a principle. As a matter of fact, the way you judge other people is the way that other people are going to judge you. If you're critical and unforgiving toward other people, they're going to be critical and unforgiving toward you. Don't judge or you will be judged. Be careful. And then if you read the rest of Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, you see that the teaching that Jesus gave about not judging or you'll be judged, he doesn't say you're never to judge. He says, take care of your own life. Let God get care of your stuff. And then you'll be in a position, take the log out of your own eye in that very same passage, then you'll be able to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Jesus is not saying, nor did he ever intend, nor did he ever teach, don't judge your brother. The teaching was, when you judge your brother, be very careful that you are in a position to speak into your brother's life. That's what that whole passage is about. Look at what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Very similar to Paul's instructions about communion where the Corinthians were not honoring communion. And he said, that's why many of you are ill and some of you have died because God wants to spare you for the day of salvation. You don't lose your salvation, but what you are causing is disgrace to the name and reputation of God. You're hindering the mission of the church and God, because he loves his glory, rightly so. God is the only one who can love his glory and not be guilty of vanity. Because it's true in the truest sense of the word, God is the only one who should be worshiped and adored. There are times when God will judge the body to spare the soul. And here's one of those again, where he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little yeast, leavens the whole lump? This is a permeation issue. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, meaning sin, 
the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And look what he says here. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. See, it's not just sexual sin. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of ongoing sexual immorality or greed. That's the tense that's provided here because if it wasn't, you would be out one time. Remember Jesus said, if a man even looks lustfully at a woman, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. Which of you men has not done that? See, it's not talking about making sin an impossibility in your life. It's talking about tolerating ongoing sin as a practice, which is out of character with your new creation, out of character with my new creation, and being saved as a follower of Jesus Christ. So this is what he's saying here. I'm writing you, verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The Bible absolutely does present the idea of judging people. That's what's presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If the glory of God and his reputation is at jeopardy for being compromised because of leaven or yeast or sin, we are supposed to deal with the sin issue. And that person, that individual, has the opportunity of either responding in humility and brokenness and repentance or facing the disciplinary hand of God. The choice is up to them and the choice is up to the leaders in the church based on observing the behavior of the individual or the individuals. Is the person or the people responding in humility and brokenness and godly sorrow that leads to repentance? If so, then that's good. We go down a path of restoration and forgiveness and healing and wholeness and the glory of God can be manifest as we see again the beauty of justice and mercy kissing on the cross, the message of the gospel. We are to be a whole Holy Spirit Hospital, where people who are broken, people who make mistakes, people who stumble, people who sin, can come to their senses after being deceived by the entangling deceit of sin. They can come and they can confess and get right with God and get right with people. When somebody does that, we welcome them. We forgive them. We open the door to reconciliation. And unless they are humble and broken and repentant, we don't seek to restore them in a phony, false way. That leaves the door open for nothing but discipline and distance. Distance between them and God. Distance between them and other believers. And the disciplinary hand of God. Not a pretty thing. Not a necessary thing. It's not necessary for anybody to go through discipline when it comes to church discipline. And all that's required is agreeing with God about the truth. That's what humility is, agreeing with God about the truth. Now, the amazing thing about 1 Corinthians, one of the amazing things, is 2 Corinthians. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
because there seems to be an indication very possibly that the same person that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who did this heinous thing by being sexually involved with his father's wife and the Corinthians were boasting about it, bragging about it. The issue was that this sin could permeate throughout the whole church and dishonor God. It seems to be an indication in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that that very individual actually did humble themselves. They did turn from their sin. And then there was a response needed and necessary from the church. Here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. See, when one sins, the others are affected as well. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The Apostle Paul ain't too proud to beg when it comes to the glory of God. I beg you, he says, to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. You know, we are facing a test as a church. In the same way, will we be obedient to everything? Partial obedience is disobedience. We cannot be selective about, well, I'll take this scripture as more important than that scripture and I'll overlook that one because it's going to upset my life too much. No, partial obedience is disobedience. And just in the same way that the Corinthian church was being tested with the severe sin of an individual who had, which had significant fallout for the rest of the body, and they had to face a decision. Are we going to forgive and allow God the opportunity to reconcile or are we going to hold the grudge? And are we going to hold the standard that even God Almighty himself doesn't hold? When somebody repents, we are to forgive and restore and open the door for the reconciliation that can only be experienced in the body of Christ if the church is not willing to be that Holy Spirit hospital where people, whether they're saved or if they're not yet saved, can come and let God deal with the junk in the trunk. If we are not willing to let God clean up acts when people are honest and transparent, whether they got caught or whether they honestly confess it without getting caught, if we're not willing to allow people to be in a safe place where they can be real and where they can be restored with God and restored with people. We leave people no option on planet Earth. There is no place else for them to go to experience the forgiveness, the healing, the wholeness, the restoration, the gospel of God through his representative in this world, which is the church, the body of Christ. We are the group of people through whom God is delivering the message, not through just words, but through action of reconciliation. There is no gospel without the good news, and the good news is the ministry of reconciliation, being made right with God and being made right with people. And we in the church are to embrace that in a practical way. So yes, when somebody doesn't repent, 
when they're arrogant, when they're disobedient, when they're divisive, when they're gossiping, when they're slandering, when they won't get right with people, they're making a choice not to get right with God and they give no choice to the leadership, no choice to God himself, but to go down a difficult, dark path of discipline. But the purpose of that discipline, listen, the purpose of that discipline is to bring somebody to their senses so that they'll wake up and say, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I going through my life separated from God? That intimacy, that fellowship, that communion with him is broken because I'm being hard-hearted. I'm not being like Jesus in humility at all. I'm being exactly not like Jesus. Remember, the original sin was pride. And the root of every sin is pride. When we act in pride, we act like the devil. We believe the lie, and it's dangerous. The purpose of discipline is to lead somebody to the feet of Jesus so they can be restored and reconciled to God reconciled to people and the glory of God. The gospel itself is rediscovered yet again. And so when somebody is humble, when somebody is broken, when somebody is contrite, when somebody lays themselves at the feet of Jesus and says, God, you were right and I was wrong. I was led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. Rescue me and save me. Listen, you've got to be careful and so do I. If you choose to swim in the cesspool of sin, you have no control over what may float by. I'm not so sure that that brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 woke up one morning and said, I'm going to commit sexual immorality with my father's wife. But you swim in the cesspool long enough, you'll come across some deep, dark, disgusting things things you might have never wanted to touch, but you will end up touching them because sin is entangling. It's dark, it's devilish, it's dastardly. And sin, when it is full grown, will lead to death. In Galatians chapter 6, look with me at Galatians chapter 6, we're reminded of how to handle a sinning saint when their sin might have been greed, might have been idolatry, might have been sexual immorality, whatever it might be, is honestly dealt with before God and others. Here's what we must do. Galatians chapter 6 in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Look at that, restore, the idea of restoration. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Look at that. See, here's how we are supposed to treat somebody who is broken, who is humble, who confesses their sin, who is repentant. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, see, there it is. It's possible to be caught in a transgression. Doesn't make it worse if you're caught as opposed to you've come out and you've volunteered it. There is still the opportunity for forgiveness and restoration. Still the opportunity. You have it here in the black and white of Scripture. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Remember Jesus? 
That woman caught in adultery where the people were really ticked off at her. How did Jesus respond? Let you, who is without sin, cast the first stone. That woman never did get stoned that day. Because Jesus' teaching cut to the heart. The understanding is that but by the grace of God go I. Sin is dark, dastardly, devilish, deceitful. It has tentacles. It will reach out and take you to places you'd never wanted to go. Therefore, run away from it. How does God treat us? Look with me at Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's how God deals with us. And we've seen it in Galatians. We've seen it in 2 Corinthians, and now we see it again in the book of Colossians. Look with me at Colossians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Colossians 3, 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So you also must forgive. How? As the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As the Lord has forgiven us, we are to forgive. Whenever a saint Sins and it affects other people in deep, dark, dastardly, devilish ways. The body of Christ is then faced with a decision. That individual, those individuals are then faced with a decision. What will come next? Will it be discipline, distance from God, distance from people, wandering in the wilderness? Or will it be forgiveness? and restoration, and healing, and a rediscovery again of the gospel. Remember, there is no good news without the good news, and the good news is that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, become sin so that you and I could somehow become the righteousness of God on that cross in his body. Justice and mercy kissed. Every church will be faced eventually with the opportunity to be obedient in everything, to discover again and again and again the depths, the riches and the goodness, the mercy, the grace, the love of God, which is known as the gospel. This church will be a church where we put that gospel into action so that broken people, people like you, people like me, people who make mistakes called sin, people who do things they shouldn't do and don't do things they should do, it's called sin, whether we want to cut it one way or another, so that every single one of us can experience the grace and the mercy of God. That's what this church is all about. 
And God may very well be testing us to see whether or not we're going to become a bunch of Pharisees or whether we're going to follow Jesus, the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus, the one who took every single one of our sins, as dark and dastardly or as light and insignificant as we might be deceived to think they are. There's no such thing as an insignificant sin. We've got a golden opportunity before us, church, to respond and see the gospel in action. Is anybody interested in that? You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.